First, a story, the story of a Facebook post. You may recall that I come to you from Minnesota, a place the local Jews call the land of the frozen chosen. <laughs> well, I love California and have no desire to spend another winter on the northern prairies, I still treasure the Jewish community that I grew up in. And it was with great pain that I read recent news of the synagogue fire in Duluth, Minnesota, that beautiful city on Lake Superior. Back home, friends expressed fear and anger. How could they not? The massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh and the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville are still fresh in our minds. Many waited with suspense for the Duluth police chief's press briefing when he announced that investigators considered the fire to be arson, but not a hate crime. Many were astonished. How was this not a hate crime? And then further details came out, and I wrote the following on my Facebook page. As investigators continue to do their work, it seems that it is possible that one outcome may be that the person who started the fire was a homeless man trying to get warm. Apparently the fire was started right outside the sukkah, a ritual structure associated with hospitality, peace, vulnerability, and gratitude. I don't need to explain the irony. If this is the case, it will still be a hate crime. No, not of the man who started the fire, rather the crime of hating the poor and ill. The crime of responding to those most desperate among us with public policy not rooted in love and compassion and above all justice. That Facebook post was liked more than 420 times and shared nearly 120 times, mostly by people I had never met many of them apparently Jews. One commentator wrote, wow, okay, I stand corrected and humbled. And another, heartbreaking in a totally different way than I expected. But what exactly was expected? And where does that come from? One question about Jewish history that continues to emerge in American public discourse is, is it ever appropriate to draw analogies between contemporary political events and Nazi Germany? In our attempt to make sense of urgent matters, such as the detention centers at the border, or the anti-Semitic and racist rally in Charlottesville, or white nationalist attacks on Jewish, Muslim, Christian, and Sikh places of worship, we hear voices that draw comparisons between our communal memories of the Holocaust and contemporary political life, and at the same instant voices that decry such comparisons as vulgar or misleading or just inaccurate. In his 2002 novel, Everything is Illuminated, Jonathan Safran Foer asks, what does it remember like? Foer suggests that part of being Jewish is having a sixth sense. He explains, the Jew is pricked by a pin and remembers other pins. It is only by tracing the pinprick back to other pinpricks. When his mother tried to fix his sleeve while his arm was still in it, 
when his grandfather's fingers fell asleep from stroking his great-grandfather's damp forehead, when Abraham tested the knife point to be sure Isaac would feel no pain, that the Jew is able to know why it hurts. I think that when something happens like a synagogue fire, many of us ask ourselves and each other, what does it remember like? The question of memory, how we understand the past and what that understanding means for us today is fundamental to Jewish identity and religiosity. To be Jewish is to live in intimate relationship with the past. Not because we romanticize that past, but because we understand deep in our bones that our memory of the past has everything to do with our construction of the future. And yet, intimacy with our past also forges a relationship to memory in which our history is something we often feel protective of. To suggest that something is like the Holocaust can be an affront to our sensibilities. The atrocities committed against Jews and many others who were targeted by the Nazis seem unique in so many ways. Holocaust historian Deborah Lipstadt, one of the most respected voices in the world on the topic, wrote an essay in The Atlantic in June of 2018, which you may recall was in the wake of national attention being focused on the administration's family separation policy. Her essay is titled, It's Not the Holocaust. In that article, she writes, the Trump administration's policy of separating children from their parents brought a flood of comparisons to the Holocaust. Former CIA director Michael Hayden posted a picture of the entrance to Birkenau death camp with the message, other governments have separated mothers and children. Lipstadt continues, I understand Hayden's outrage, I share it, but something can be horrific without being a genocide or a Holocaust. Defenders of the Trump policy self-righteously pounced on the comparison, denouncing it as hyperbolic. Although there is nothing that can, good that can be said about the family separation policy, it is not a genocide. Equating the two is not only historically wrong, it is also strategically wrong. Glib comparisons to the Nazis provide the administration and its supporters with a, a chance to defend their position, something they do not deserve. Lipstadt then continues the essay by arguing that Holocaust comparisons have become prolific in American culture and are often what she calls patently absurd. Continuing with examples, she reminds us that Pat Robertson once claimed, just what Nazi Germany did to the Jews, so liberal America is now doing to evangelical Christians. It's no different homosexuals who want to destroy all Christians. Lipstadt notes that as he denounced liberal America, images of Nazi whores appeared on the screen. She also cites the example of People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals exhibition entitled Holocaust on Your Plate, pictures of emaciated farm animals hung next to images of concentration camp victims. I think for most of us, and certainly for me, we can see that such comparisons have the potential to be not only absurd, as Lipstadt writes, but also deeply offensive. Many in our congregation had relatives who perished in the Holocaust, and we are blessed to have survivors among us who can share their stories. 
what they went through should never be diminished in such ways. The Holocaust stands out as a stunning example of the human capacity for evil, and cavalier analogies are never acceptable. At the same time, if we are serious about the maxim, never again, then we must be able to compare this horrific chapter from our past with our contemporary world as we attempt to discern the meaning of political life around us. In other words, if one of my ethical commitments as a Jew is that I will do what I can to prevent anyone else from experiencing the horrors that Nazi victims experienced during World War II, then I must be able to use analogy and comparison so that I know when to act on my ethical commitment. If, before I know any details, the news of a burning synagogue causes me to think of Reichspogromnacht, the night of the broken glass, and all of the ethical and moral questions that emerge from that event, am I misusing history? This past June, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez referred to the detention centers at the U.S.-Mexico border as concentration camps. In response, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum issued a statement that opens with the following. The U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum unequivocally rejects efforts to create analogies between the Holocaust and other events, whether historical or contemporary. That position has repeatedly and unambiguously been made clear in the museum's official statement on the matter, a statement that is reiterated and reaffirmed now. Respected Holocaust historian Dr. Timothy Snyder, a professor of history at Yale, sits on the museum's Committee on Conscience. He published a widely shared article rebuking the museum's statement, calling it a moral threat. He writes, a federally funded museum is telling Americans not to think. In doing so, it has made nonsense of the slogan, never again, and provided moral cover for ongoing and oppressive American policies. He continues, analogizing is not some mysterious operation. It is how we think. Every time someone asks you for advice about a situation beyond your personal experience, your mind makes analogies with what you do know. Then you ask questions that allow you to clarify similarities and differences. At some point, you have understood and can act. Never again is nothing other than an invocation of that process. And he concludes the essay with the following. Our preference is to see ourselves as victims. And thus, if anyone seems to be referring to the Holocaust and to us, we reflexively defend our innocence. That is what is happening now. One of our official institutions of memory is defending our innocence treating us as the offended victims. But the moral lesson of the Holocaust is not that you risk being a victim. The moral lesson of the Holocaust is the danger that you will ignore the victims or torment them or worse. When historical comparison is suppressed, we no longer have political thought, we have political taboo. We no longer have civil society, we have authoritarian conformity. If we are to take both Lipstadt and Snyder seriously as intellectuals who speak from a place of authority, 
then we find ourselves faced with a situation in which Holocaust analogies are deeply fraught and problematic, and yet, at times, a moral imperative. What does this mean for us? Let us return for a moment to the question posed by Jonathan Safran Foer. What does it remember like? We are, without a doubt, memory people, on Passover through a family ritual that is among the most widely observed Jewish customs, we remember the story of our ancestors' enslavement. We taste the bitterness of suffering and the salt of tears. We taste the hope of spring and renewal with parsley and eggs. And all of this serves as a mitzvah, a spiritual obligation that we must draw analogies between our past and the world around us, so that whenever we see something that is like Egypt, that remembers like Egypt, we act. In this way, memory and ethics are profoundly linked in our tradition. Indeed, is the principle never again, not precisely the turning of a collective memory into an ethical demand. Each winter, I travel to Los Angeles with our eighth grade students. And as an aside, you should know that my husband, Fran, comes along every year. And for that, the congregation owes him eternal gratitude. <laughs> Among several other meaningful experiences, including the Emmanuel Rite of Passage that is a night at Disneyland, we take our students to the Museum of Tolerance, which includes a Holocaust education exhibit. Near the end of the exhibit, the students are led into a space that is reminiscent of a gas chamber in which they watch a short film that teaches some of the most horrific memories of the Holocaust. I am always in the back of the group as we enter with the docent in the front, and I hate this moment. Watching our teens walk into that room is painful and chilling, even though I know it is a safe educational experience. Sometimes I question if we should be bringing our young teenagers that we are hoping will develop a positive and joyful relationship with Judaism into such a harsh and potentially traumatizing educational milieu. And then I think about what we are doing. We are not only transmitting memory, but also we are transmitting an ethical framework in which they will be able to make comparisons and analogies between our Jewish past and the world they are inheriting. After you exit the exhibit, you go directly into a contemporary exhibit that explores current issues of prejudice and intolerance. The message is clear. Remember the Holocaust so that these things don't happen again, so that you can see signs of it in our current society. In the end, we may not settle the debate about whether or not the detention centers at the border are concentration camps, or whether or not certain policies or political strategies of the current administration are similar to the Third Reich. But we don't need to settle that debate for us to live up to our ethical commitments. Sometimes comparisons with the Holocaust are offensive and deeply inaccurate. Sometimes such comparisons do nothing to help bring about more justice in our world and gravely dishonor the millions of victims of Nazi violence. And yet, 
remembering our past for the explicit purpose of creating an ethical framework for the present and future is a central and powerful religious obligation in Judaism. What I am asking for is public discourse in which our past can be thoughtfully examined for the wisdom it might bring to bear on the present, for us to be able to ask the questions, all the questions, without the topic of the Holocaust becoming off limits. Because if it is always off limits, we can never apply the important lessons that emerge from this horrific chapter. We are living in very difficult times. We are watching the rise of ethnocentric nationalism around the globe and suffering the devastating and often violent impact of the associated ideologies. When a synagogue in northern Minnesota bursts into bright flames against the backdrop of a beautiful lake so big you can't see across it, this touches something in the Jewish psyche. But it's not only a burning synagogue as horrific as that is. In those flames, some see pharaohs and Hamans, pogroms and trains. And so when we see a child in a cage or a white shooter at an African-American church in South Carolina or at a mosque in New Zealand, we ask ourselves, what does this remember like? When we see our national politics descending into chaos and division, with demagoguery taking the place of thoughtful civil discourse, we ask ourselves, what does this remember like? And whether or not a particular moment for a particular Jew has resonance with the Holocaust is really not the point. Our obligation as Jews is to allow the history of our people to help us understand what is right and wrong so that we can attend to the moral demands of our day. Memory is a commandment. I'll end with this. There is something else that Jewish memory can offer us that is just as important as ethics. Hope. Jewish memory animates the possibility of great change. If you, like me, look around our world right now and sometimes feel you can't see how we will get to a better day, then I want you to take a look back so that you can once again look ahead. When Moses demanded that Pharaoh free our people, he did so in a context that might have appeared hopeless, and yet he lived out a story that has become a central freedom narrative around the world. When Queen Esther found within herself the courage to speak up and demand justice, the future looked bleak, and yet she changed the fate of our people. When we light the Havdalah candle, we sing a verse that remembers Esther's courage and victory, La Yehudim Haita Ora. For those Jews, our ancestors, there was light. And then we add the words, Kain Tehiye Lanu. So may it be for us. I ask you to remember not only the pain of our memories and the foundation of ethics and moral courage they provide for us, but also aura, the light. Hope is also central to ethics. Smell the bisamim, the spices of possibility. Drink the sweet wine that promises a return to joy. 
sing for Elijah, symbol of a new day. La Yehudim Haita Ora, our people know that redemption is always possible. Kain Tehiyeh Lanu, so may it be for us. Shana Tova Umituka, to a year of goodness and sweetness.